Good morning. Again, thank you. Hey, before we jump into the sermon, let me, uh, let me say something. If you haven't noticed, or if you didn't know, we bought the building next door. We're renovating it. Uh, that will become our sanctuary one day. If you have not gone over and seen the construction that's starting to happen, the walls that have come down, uh, go check it out. Pretty exciting to, uh, to see. All right, now she said we are uh, in a series in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the life and the teachings of Jesus. For the first eight chapters... The first eight chapters of Luke, Luke is primarily, primarily talking about the identity of Jesus, who who he is. Now, going forward, Luke is going to primarily uh, be speaking about and addressing what it means to follow him. And today in our text, in chapter 9, we are looking at a scene that is the overlap of the two, where Jesus brings them both together. He, He addresses both who am I and what does that therefore mean when it comes to following me. So let me frame where we're going today uh, like this. Titles mean something. Titles mean something, right? In our culture, in their culture, uh, titles just mean something. And so um, they do two things. Let me flesh this out a bit. One, they define the nature of our relationship. And then two, they reveal something about how we see the relationship, right? So the title that I would give somebody defines how I see the nature of our relationship. And so a couple of examples. Uh, my kids, they have a title for me. Uh, it's dad. Uh, it's dad. Uh, that title comes with relational expectations. They are expected to do what I say. They do not do what I say, but they're expected to do what I say. It, it means that I'm supposed to be a place of safety and security. When they're afraid, they know I've got a dad that I can go to. It's a title that has relational implications and expectations. Roommate is a title that comes with relational implications and expectations on one another. Boss is a title that has implications and expectations on one another. If I'm your boss, you're expected to do uh, what I say. If you have a boss, you're expected to do the job that you are asked to do. Your boss is an authority over you. It's a, it's a, it's a title that has relational implications and expectations to it. But there's more than that. Titles also reveal Titles that we give also reveal how we see the nature of our relationship. So, for example, if we're out in public and, and I um, introduced someone as my coworker versus introducing them as my friend, that says something about how I see the primary nature of our relationship. Both can be true. Both can be true. But something is going to take the front seat in how I would identify the nature of the relationship I have with this person. So I'm talking about this because there are functional, functional titles that we give Jesus. Are there not? There are functional titles that we give Jesus that reveal something about how we see him. So if we think of him primarily, functionally, moral leader, religious teacher, redeemer, mentor, protector, these are titles that we functionally give to Jesus that mean something about what we think it means to follow him. And today Jesus is going to ask a question that is in need of an answer. Jesus is going to ask a question today that is in need of an answer, and it's the question, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? What title do you give me? What title do you give me? But here's the thing. By the time we get to the end of our text, here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to take us to the question beneath the question. You see, beneath the question, what title do you give me, is another undercurrent question that Jesus is going to take us to. But we'll get to that in a minute. For right now, let's go verse 18. Luke 9, verse 18. 
Now it happened that he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And so here's, here's the scene. Here's where we are at this stage in the game. Jesus is going along. He's teaching. He's um, doing some uh, miracles, healing people. And he's gathered a crowd. There's a crowd of people around him. And Jesus says, um, hey, who do they think that I am? These people that are intrigued by me, curious about who I am, maybe uh, wondering a bit more about my implications for their life, who do they say that I am? And their answer was essentially this. We think he's an important religious figure. John the Baptist, a contemporary, Elijah, an important Old Testament figure, prophets of old, those were people that spoke for God. And so their answer was essentially this, that we think he's an important religious figure. You see, the crowds around him knew this. They knew that Jesus was important. They just didn't know why yet. They just weren't sure why yet. And because they weren't sure why, they didn't know what title to give him. They didn't know what title to give him. But Jesus is not going to let this stay with the crowds. He's now going to turn the answer, the question, I'm sorry, to the disciples. And it says, he said it to them, but then Jesus said to them, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Hey, disciples, the, the, the ones with me right now, who do you say that I am? I'm not asking about the crowds anymore. I'm asking about you. Who do you say that I am? Not who does a commentator on CNN or Fox News say that I am. I'm asking you, who am I? Who do you say that I am? I'm not asking your neighbor. I'm not asking your coworker. I'm not asking your family member. I'm asking you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This, if ever there was one, is a question in your life in need of an answer. Jesus asking, who do you say that I am, is one of life's inescapable questions. Listen to me. From the ivory tower of Harvard's philosophy department to every deathbed in every hospital around the world, one of life's inescapable questions is Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The scriptures were written for you, and the question that he was asking the disciples is a question that Jesus would ask you. What, what do you say about me? What title would you give me? Who do you say that I am? Here's Peter's answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Now, when, when we think the word Christ, commonly what we think is, is a name, that, that Jesus' name is Jesus Christ, but the word Christ is that uh, behind that is the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. It's a title. It's reference to an anointed king. It's an anointed king. It's a title for who Jesus is. So what I need us to do right now is I want us to, to kind of step back. I want to I go from chapter 9 and just kind of pull back a little bit and look at, uh, look at Luke as a, as a whole for a bit. Because I think Luke is doing something unique. There is something unique in Luke that he is doing that I don't think the other Gospels do. Did you know that Luke is the only one to call Jesus a Savior? Matthew, Mark, the other synoptics, they don't do it. Luke is the only Gospel that calls Jesus a Savior. Do you know where he does it? He does it in the birth narrative. Chapter 2. And so when we, when we put uh, chapter 9 in this progression 
in the narrative progression of the Gospel of Luke, the flow of the the flow of thought in the Gospel of Luke, here's what we see. We see chapter 2, Jesus is the Savior to come. Chapter 4, I'm here, Jesus, I'm here to preach the good news to the poor. I'm here to preach good news to the poor. Chapter 6, blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who weep. This is uh, not Matthew's, the poor in spirit. This is Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, those who are weeping right now. And then chapter 9, we hit that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed King. And in the narrative progression, the flow of Luke, I think that Luke is making appointment, not making a point, not a, not appointment. That's not, that's not a word. Making a point. Not just about the kind of king Jesus is, but about the kind of salvation that Jesus brings. I, I want you to hear it from this commentator. It's a, it's a longer quote. I, um, I don't really apologize for that. But Luke is going to challenge the American view of salvation and the American church in our background. Most of us, myself included, when, when, when we think Jesus saves, if that's not offensive to us, if we've embraced it, we tend to think what Jesus does, he saves me, like me, gets me out of all of the problems of my life. Jesus is my Savior. It's very individualistic. It's individually vertical, me and God. But listen to this. Luke's gospel defines Savior in a way that reshapes Israel's. Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament expectation of salvation as well as our own. Jesus the Savior delivers Israel from the deepest dimensions of its plight, its spiritual state of sinfulness and bondage to Satan. But this salvation turns out to be a broadly encompassing salvation aimed at whole persons and communities. Salvation is a comprehensive image that embraces a number of benefits throughout God's saving actions in Jesus. Jesus proclaimed, your faith has saved you, whether from sins, from hemorrhage, from leprosy, or from blindness. By identifying these key events as acts of salvation, the work of the Savior, Luke invites us to view all other, all of the other healings and deliverances as salvation. The Savior is at work in Israel, opening the eyes of the blinds, unstopping the ears of the deaf, causing the lame to leap and proclaiming liberty to the captives. These are all concrete images of Israel's end-time salvation. That was a long quote, I know. There are several verses in Luke that were referenced that when you read through um, the Gospel of Luke where it's a hemorrhage or leprosy or blindness, um, you, you'll, you'll read the English word heal, that Jesus healed. The the Greek word, what the New Testament was written in, underneath those is the word to save. Luke is making a statement about the holistic nature of the salvation that Jesus brings. He is making a statement that Jesus' salvation is not simply this spiritual, individual thing, but it is all-encompassing. It is the world starting with shalom, ending with shalom, and Jesus bringing shalom back through him. It is spiritual, it is physical, it is emotional, it is psychological, it is holistic. It is all-encompassing, which is why, which is why the statement "anointed King" that Jesus is the Christ of God was such an authoritative statement and such a challenging statement. It collided with Rome. Rome, they didn't need King Jesus. They had Caesar Augustus. You know what Caesar Augustus was titled? The Savior of the world. 
Savior of the world. And now there is a new king on the scene bringing about a new kind of salvation. See, in Caesar's kingdom, he accrued power from the poor. In Jesus' kingdom, he gives power to the poor. In Caesar's kingdom, he discards the weak and physically impaired. In Jesus' kingdom, he heals the weak and the physically impaired. Caesar's kingdom is bad news for the marginalized. Jesus' kingdom is good news for the marginalized. Jesus is here to upend social structures. His kingdom is a collision with Rome's existing social structures. You see, in Rome, the poor started poor and their life got worse. In Jesus' kingdom, the poor start poor and their life gets better. In Rome's kingdom, in Caesar's kingdom, the rich start rich and they get richer. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm here to humble the rich and to make them generous, and I'm here to empower and lift up the poor and let them know they're part of my family. Jesus' kingdom is on a collision course with Rome and Rome's values. But it wasn't just Rome that was colliding with, it was also the religious leaders of the day. Let's keep reading verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them all to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. So the elders, chief priests, scribes, these were the religious leaders of the day. These were the ones um, who the religious system and structure benefited. They were the ones who, if this Jesus movement takes off, they would lose their place in the religious society. But here's what's interesting. Did you notice it says the Son of Man must, must suffer, that he must suffer and he must be rejected by these people. Why? Why? So here's what I think Jesus is doing. It's strategic, it's subtle, it's tactical, but Jesus is entering into an Old Testament question. The Old Testament question of what would the Messiah be like? When the Christ shows up, what will he be like? Will he be like the Son of Man, the Son of Man from Daniel 7 that says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." When the Christ comes, will he be like the Son of Man? Will he be the one who has a dominion of nations, languages? Will he be the triumphant one? Is that who the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be? Or, or would he be more like the one who has to suffer? Would he be more like the one from Isaiah, the suffering servant, that says he was despised and rejected by men? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So which one is it going to be? The triumphant king or the one who gets slaughtered? Which one is it going to be? And Jesus shows up and says, yes, I am. Yes, I am. I am the king of kings. I am the one who nations will be subject to. And I am the one who loves you enough to go and hang on a Roman cross and die for you. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. This is your king. This is who he is. 
He is the one who through his death and resurrection is establishing the upside down kingdom of God on earth. The one whose values collide with Rome and collide with the religious. This is who your king is. And it's a kingdom you get to be a part of, but there are some expectations for life in that kingdom. And this is where Jesus is going to start his way turning, start taking us toward uh, the question beneath the question from what title do you give me to the question that sits underneath that. So let's keep reading verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take his cross, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Okay, when, when Jesus says deny yourself, we need to put that in the first century context to feel a bit of the weight of what he's saying here. So the, the first century context that he was in, this was not, this was not an individualistic context. You, you were not an individual, you were part of a family. You had a family unit, and that family unit was your social security. All right, so social security, been around since then, but it did not look like I work and I pay X amount into, um, you know, into social security, and then when I retire, the government then pays me back until I uh, die. That's not, that's not how it worked. Your family was your social security. They were the safety net. They were the means of future stability. They were how you knew I am never going to be destitute. My family, I take care of them, they take care of me, and no one falls through the cracks. And when Jesus says, deny yourself, he is saying, be willing to set yourself outside your existing safety net to find a new means of social security. Leave the one you have and come find it in my community who are faithful to my message, living out my kingdom on earth. Now, this, this to them, would not have felt like trading safety for safety. And put ourselves in their shoes. Like they don't know the future yet. They're, they're not reading the Gospel of Luke with 2,000 years of hindsight. They're following Jesus step by step. And Jesus is saying, I want you to leave all of the safety and security you have and come follow me. This for them would have felt far more like trading safety for death, for trading safety for danger. Hence the phrase, take up your cross and follow me. So the cross for them was not something cute that we hang on a necklace. The cross for them was how Rome killed criminals. The cross for them was something they walked past as they saw criminals hanging up there. And Jesus just said, take up your cross, follow me. And then he went on and said, hey, you, you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. Hey, what? What good is it if you gain the world but forfeit your soul? That's a net loss. Bringing it forward, Jesus is saying, listen, if you have 10 million in the bank but you've got an empty soul, that gains you nothing. 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 See, at this point, the disciples would not have known all that Jesus had to say. They would not have known the full encompassing message of Jesus. But they would have known this. Jesus is not out trying to make my life easier. If I could say it this way, Jesus would have a really hard time getting a book published today. You would not find a book by Jesus on the religion shelf in Barnes and Nobles today. They would have known Jesus is not trying to make my life easier. He just said, take up your cross. This 
they would have known is an invitation to come and die. But there is more. Let's keep reading verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me, whoever is ashamed of me, this is an interesting word choice by Jesus, is it not? Not whoever rejects me, not whoever denies, whoever is ashamed of me. To be ashamed is to experience the pain of a loss of status. To experience the pain that comes with losing your status. Jesus is saying, if, if you think what you gain with me is not more than what you lose in society, if you view me as a net status loss in your life, when I return, you won't have status with me. This is a sobering sobering, uncomfortable statement by Jesus. It is why the books on church growth say skip passages like this. Does this mean that because of that time I was embarrassed about Jesus, I didn't speak up, I was ashamed and afraid? Does it mean that because of that the time that that happens that I have forfeited my place with Jesus eternally? No, that's not what it means. How do I know? Because Peter, the one who said, I, I know who you are, Jesus, you're the Christ of God, would not not long after this, be in a crowd when someone would say, hey, do you, do you know this man? And he would say, I'm not with him. I'm not with him. I don't, I don't know him. And it would be the same Peter, the same Peter who a couple days later would get up and run to the empty tomb, the same Peter that Jesus said, I will build my rock, build my church upon this rock. The same Peter who would play an instrumental role in the advancement of the gospel into the nations, the same Peter who would write books in the Bible, the same Peter who would not lose his place in Jesus' family. You see, Jesus is not, he is not robotic with his people and their failings. He is making a statement, an emphatic statement, to force a question upon those who would follow him. And here's the question. Are you willing to lose? Are you willing to lose? If Jesus costs you relationships, security, status, are you willing to lose them? It's an inescapable question that even Jesus had to answer. But you know what happened on the cross? On the cross, Jesus experienced separation from his Father. On the cross, he had to trust the security of the Father. On the cross, he lost all social status and experienced life as an outcast, as a Roman criminal. But this is where, this is where we get to the question beneath the question. This is where we go from what, what title does Jesus have in your life to the question beneath the that question, because underneath all of what Jesus has had to say here is one word. It's the word trust. It's the word trust. Jesus had to trust the Father. Do you trust the Son? Do you? Do you? Jesus had to trust the Father with all of His life. Do you trust the Son with all of yours? Do you trust Him with your job and your ambitions and desires for success and advancement with your career? Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him with your desire for a spouse? Do you, do, do you in the middle of, Lord, is this, am I going to be single forever? Do you trust Him with your children? Do you trust Him? Do you, do you trust that He is going to take care of them? Do you trust Him with your future? Do you trust Him with your illnesses? When, when the phone call comes for you that it's your turn for cancer, do you trust Him with that addiction that just won't go away? Do you trust Him? 
with the anxiety that hasn't left, and it's been a decade, do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? Is Jesus the King, the King who comes with all the status and security that you will ever need, or is He more like a hired consultant? Is Jesus the king that you can say, I will entrust all of my life to you? Or is he more like the hired consultant that you say, hey, listen, I need you to tell me how to have my best life today. And the minute you stop giving me the life that I want, I'm going to stop paying you. And I'll find a new consultant. Which one is he? Which one is he? Do you trust me, Jesus asks. It's the question beneath the question. But here's the thing for the disciples, for those sitting with Jesus, in the very near term, this would become a life and death question for them. This was not a theoretical, I might not work my way up the ladder the way I want to. Very soon, this would become a life and death question. So he finishes with a word of comfort. Verse 27, but I tell you truly, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He is not saying that you won't suffer. He is not saying, hey, my disciples, your life's not going to get rough. He is saying that some of you, some of you here in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of all that's about to come for you, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Some of you are going to experience a foretaste of eternity. What's, What's this in reference to? Here's what Jesus is saying. Some of you listening to me right now are going to see my resurrection and my empty tomb. Some of you are going to see me ascend into the clouds. Some of you are going to see the Spirit come down at Pentecost. Some of you are going to see my kingdom start expanding out into the nations as the nations start coming under my kingship. Some of you are going to see my kingdom make its way into the earth as a foretaste of eternity and a down payment promise to you that anything you lose in this life, you will get back a thousandfold when I return. Some of you are going to get to see it. And so that word of comfort to them was also a word of comfort to you. Because that kingdom that's making its way into the nations, that made its way into the nations, made its way across oceans, and eventually made it right here where somebody told somebody who told somebody who told you. And we get to be that kingdom, that upside-down alternate society in the world. And we get to live out the values of heaven today and do it together as a foretaste of eternity, where Jesus can say to you, nothing that you lose in this life because of me, you won't get back a thousandfold when I return. So we come back to our question, do you trust him? Do you? Do you trust him? Not with a piece of you, with all of you. Do you trust him? Do you trust him with your childhood pain? Do you trust him with the anger you feel toward the people who did X, Y, and Z to you? Do you trust him? Do you trust Him with your hopes and your dreams and your future? Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? This is the question beneath the question. This is the question underneath what title do you give me? Do you trust Him? Well, Brandon, my answer is not really. What's my action item? What do I do with this? Of course, the answer for all of us is not fully. Not fully, none of it, not Not me, not you, not any of us. Would we stand up and say, yeah, yeah, he has the entirety of my life. I am no longer a work in progress. I'm there. So what do I do? What do we do? What's my action item 
today, I'm not giving you one. I don't have one today. I don't have one other than to say this. See Jesus as more valuable than anything you could ever, ever own or lose in this life. See Jesus as more desirable than any unmet desire you have ever had or will ever have in this life. And let that cultivate trust. Because listen to me. Jesus saw you desirable enough, valuable enough to trust his Father all the way to the cross where he would die in your place. Let that sink deep. Let that churn up trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Luke and this beautiful holistic picture of the salvation that your son is bringing that we have. I know that it challenges the, uh, I, I want to be my own authority in my life. I want to define who you are. I want to define the kind of life that I live. I pray that we would humble ourselves as individuals and as a community that we would humble ourselves under your kingship and that we would trust ourselves wholly and completely to you, saying we know that you know best. Lead us and guide us. We need your help. We need your guidance. We need your kingship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.